Hello and welcome to another episode of the podcast, Working Drummer. Today I got a chance to sit down and talk with Jason Sutter. Jason is known as a badass rock drummer who's worked with so many strong rock acts like Marilyn Manson, Foreigner, Chris Cornell, Vertical Horizon, and is currently on tour with Smash Mouth. Jason started young with the support of nurturing parents and a world-class private teacher. With a master's degree in orchestral performance, Jason is just as comfortable performing classical percussion, bebop with brushes, or instructing a drumline. To find out more about this episode and other episodes we've recorded, you can find us at workingdrummer.net. You can follow us on Twitter at working underscore drummer. We are also on Instagram. You can find us on iTunes where you can subscribe and new episodes will be sent to your smart device every week. If you like what you hear, leave us a review and rate the podcast. And finally, we just started a new YouTube channel where you can see videos of our interviews. Find it under Working Drummer Podcast. Never try. I've always avoided being the singing drummer, which I know is always like the thing that most dudes are like, oh man, you know, you got to sing and the more you're triple threat. And it's like, I've never really appealed to them. The singing drummer has never really been my thing. So I always try to like not sing. Yeah, I've only ever had one call where somebody said, do you sing? I'm like, no, not really. I'm like, well, I really need a singing drummer. And I, I, I lost the opportunity. To well, Matt Starr, actually, with Ace Freely. Yeah. yeah. Oh. He, had to, he had to sing. Basically, Ace didn't want to sing anymore. So when Matt got the audition for Ace Freely, he had to be able to sing all the Kiss songs to, to you know, the right style and the right inflections. And so wow. he actually got the drum gig because he was the main singer in the band. Yes. Yeah. Ace was just didn't want to deal with singing anymore because he just wanted to make the money and play guitar. Yeah. So, yeah. The very first interview I ever did uh, with a buddy of mine, David Black, he sings. And mm-hmm. uh, it's been great for him, man. Yeah. It's like now when they do acoustic gigs uh, or when they do radio tours with the guy he works with, uh, they bring him along. Crazy. Yeah. So he, sometimes it's just a shaker with yeah. an acoustic player and he's singing. He's doing all that it's stuff. It's amazing. Yeah. I, I know today's crazy. Yeah. And you're doing lots of stuff. Sure. Uh, but man, thanks. I appreciate it. Absolutely. I'm glad we got to, uh, to meet and connect and actually uh, slow things down enough to yes. say, hey, relax. Put some music on. Yeah. <laughs> no, wait. Oh, wait. Um, are you, uh, so what's going on? You're, are you buying a house and getting ready to move out this direction? You know, what's the motivation? Uh, no, for- you know, I'm mostly, to be honest, I don't know what I'm doing right now, but to, you know, for, for, you know, to be fair, I've actually just, all I'm doing, I live in LA. I have lived in LA for over 10 years, actually for almost 15 and it's been wow. great. And, um, I basically, you know, I bought a house out here eight years ago um, when I was on tour with Chris Cornell. I came through and I just saw that everything was happening in Nashville. And I thought, you know what, man, I should, I should, you know, I had some extra cash and I've, you know, I bought my house in LA and I, and that was going well. And I thought, man, I should invest in, in, uh, in Nashville because it just seemed like there were cranes everywhere and from coming touring in the nineties and like, you know, <clears throat> different bands on record labels and vans, I could see that there was all this growth was very obvious. And I thought, well, you know, it's a, you know, East Nashville, everyone talks about East Nashville as like, it's some cool area and there's still a little growth and it's already, it's already been like established and, as hip. And, um, and I thought, you know, I started seeing better restaurants and coffee shops and just hipper stuff, you know? And I started thinking, Hmm. And at worst, you know, there's a scene out here. 
So, you know, if I ever get sick of LA, you know, and houses were cheap, you know? Yeah. So all those factors kind of like, I thought, okay, well, it's a music scene, you know, I can't buy a house in New York, you know? Mm-hmm. So I bought this duplex. I thought I'll be a landlord and rent it out and make the right move as a drummer and be smart about my retirement kind of thing. <laughs> so growing up and pragmatic. Um, and so that was eight years ago. And then, and then a couple of years ago, it started becoming obvious that East Nashville was exploding and yeah. becoming hipper and hipper. And, and then I thought, you know, what? I'm, I mentioned, talked to a few people and they're like, Oh, you could you know, get a lot more money for rent. If you, you know, if you fixed it up and you got new renters. So I, I thought, okay. And then it kind of just recently kind of all came to, you know, uh, a peak, um, maybe about four months ago. And I was just kind of, you know, flying back, you know, when I play a gig, say in Florida, I just haven't dropped me through Nashville instead of going home to LA. And then I would just use miles to get back. And the more I did that, you know, it was a chance to, you know, obviously kind of figure out what was going on and what was the best way to approach fixing this place up to what level yeah, and what was actually happening in these areas that I kept hearing about. And, you know, I always wanted to come out here and just check it out, you know, make Mm -hmm. the scene, you know, and clinics and whatever. I always talk about, you know, being in the right place at the right time and following, you know, make, being aware of your surroundings in order to stay busy. So, you know, I thought, well, why not just check it out? And I knew, I know so many drummers here, so many great friends who've relocated or have been here for years and kind of helped actually make Nashville what it is. And so I thought, you know, this is a great excuse to kind of be hanging out for an extra couple of days and doing the work during the day and going out at night. And so I, I started, did that a lot. And then I basically decided on doing this, you know, getting this house, you know, doing a major overhaul on it and figured I'd time this last tour. I was just finished this summer with Smash Mouth and I finished in Dallas and I said, well, fly me to Nashville and I'll just come and oversee the final stages and try to get renters and deal with all that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, more, less fun, more, more work, you know, and in the process, you know, it's kind of been extended and a few shows were postponed for some different reasons. And so I'm kind of here, you know, I've been here yeah. and it almost, I've almost been here for a month, which is bizarre considering I have a home in LA. I haven't been to in, you know, almost two before I got here. So it'll be like, you know, almost three months since I'm home. But anyway, long story. Um, I'm not sure what's happening, but I'm here and I'm hanging out. You know, yeah, so we get yeah. to hang and do our thing and I go out every night. I'm going to this, you know, some club tonight to hear somebody play. And I'm so I'm just, you know, meeting new people and who are awesome and hanging with old friends who are great. And I could it's literally the amount of people I know here are so vast and um and extensive. I could list probably twenty drummers I know already. Yeah, know. it's crazy. It's crazy. Well and even last Monday when I met you, uh that afternoon I was at Forks. Uh hanging out and doing some shopping and and I saw you there and you were talking with somebody and you kind of see it's like well, I wonder who this guy is I wonder this because I've been here for 15 years and, right. and I actually worked for Gary when I first moved down and uh, so then when I saw you at the club I was like man I I just saw this guy earlier and I saw a bunch of people who I knew talking with you and so that was kind of the, I made that connection mm-hmm. like wait a minute who's this guy Yeah, you know so that was cool, and and there is that again that community that that drummers I think always have, and let alone in a town like Nashville, it uh, it just adds to that comfortableness. Yeah, that easy going. Absolutely. I mean, it was uh, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, the first you know you know the first time I came through here, you know, I mentioned to a few people, you know, and when I was on tour last year, last time I played here was with actually with Marilyn Manson maybe two years ago or a year ago, maybe no, about two years ago, and I came through and i had, uh 
I went and I had coffee with Rich Redmond, who I had never met. And, but we went to North Texas together and missed each other by a couple of years. Um, and, you know, hit it off right away. I guess, you know, there were people writing on the Nashville Facebook, you know, saw Sutter walking through downtown, you know, and I talked to Rich. He posted something about having a hang at Printer's Alley afterwards. And there were like 20 drummers showed up after a show. Yeah, yeah. Some would come to the show. Some would just come to hang. And yeah. it was a really cool kind of like, wow, this is a whole cool thing. I know a lot of these guys, but I don't know a lot of these guys. So it was very, like you said, communal. And it was like, I have this scene in L.A., which I do, a whole posse of drummers that hang out. And so... It's cool to see that that exists here, and there's like a drummer's lunch that happens, and and then there's you know on the first Wednesday of every month or something, and mm-hmm. I went to that, and then there's a so there are all these things you know that happen here, but you know bit by bit I meet this guy, he introduced me to you know say I you know this drummer like say Nick Buda I just met mm-hmm. at the right. ja- at the jam we're talking about, and then someone else said oh he's playing at this gig and it was a totally different playing and I actually got to see this dude play this different style, and it turns out you know I find out he's on all these records that you know I never knew he was on and right. You know, he's kind of a, uh, you know, a legend here. And so it's just interesting to kind of like come in and just kind of all these characters who I've heard of um, or met in different, you know, travel in my different my travels, you know, to kind of get to see them in their element and see the scene here. And, you know, uh, everyone says it's smaller, but of course, I've been here for maybe three weeks and it still still doesn't feel that small, you know, but but you do see a lot of the same people and you do, you know, and and everyone is very genuinely friendly. And I don't feel um, any kind of. um, I've had nothing but like, hey, you should move out here kind of thing, you know, and and regardless of what I end up doing, you know, it is funny that it's cool that people are so welcoming and, and genuine, you know? Yeah, I, th- I think so. Uh, when you first moved out to L.A., what was it that drew you out there to begin with? You know, not re- I really didn't know. I'd made a record for A&M and I came out and I saw it and I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I always, I'd never been there. I thought, oh, yeah, I, I always... I always, yeah, I, I knew this place from TV shows or movies. And I was yeah. like, oh, yeah, I know this place. And this makes sense. And it's rock and roll. And it was very steeped in rock and roll. And there was a lot of, you know, rock action and bands and record labels. And, and just it was an excitement, you know, an excitement level of like an optimism. Yeah. And I thought, huh, I'm in Boston. And it kind of felt like that whole post-Nirvana record label grunge thing was kind of fading and, and I had had a great run in Boston for five years and signed a couple of record deals and it was awesome to play with a bunch of great people but I thought if I really was going to do this for a living I would probably have to go somewhere where the investment in time would eventually pay off you yeah. know? whereas Boston I felt the doors were closing the windows were closing on the, the walls were closing and I mean and um, so I moved to LA and I thought mm, I'm just going to give this a whirl you know mm-hmm. and and, uh, you know, I didn't know anyone there. I slept what year on a was couch. that? I'd be 2000. Okay. I slept on a couch, some girl I barely knew who had friends in Boston. And one by one, Boston people started trickling out. And I knew a couple of people. And then I ran into a buddy named Luke Adams who was uh, playing at the Viper Room. I had some friends with Adam Duritz from the Counting Crows. And I went down to see a band he had signed or something. He had a label at the time. And then the opening band was this band. And I went up to the drummer and just said, hey, man, you sounded great. And he was like, dude, it's me. And it was Luke Adams, who I went to North Texas with. And then instantly it was like, here's a, you know, a million North Texas guys who know you. And right, right, right. So that's how that, that happened. And I ended up through a girl I was friends with who, you know, um, I played with Ben Lee. And she kind of mentioned, hey, this guy played with Ben Lee. You know, Ben... Um, I, I think I heard you might be looking for a drummer and it was this guy Jason Faulkner who played with Jellyfish and it was like a real catalyst in the LA, in the LA scene and a real kind of local hero legend yeah. and he still had a small tour to do so I ended up um, doing this tour you know I ended up doing this last you know leg of this tour which was basically really con- 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 you know comprised of like maybe five shows around LA but it was a great way to kind of get in with this 
you know, super talent and a great name for a resume that oh, when you, you yeah. know, when you put out that on the audition list, you know, that you played with that guy, it was always something someone would comment on, you know, an artist would be like, Oh, you play with Faulkner. And, um, and so that kind of helped me kind of, you know, get my LA sea legs happening. And that was only about two months after I got there. And, oh, that's great. you know, so yeah, slowly. And then I kind of got in with the Barry Squire scene, of, you know, Barry Squire, but he's a big agent out there who booked for, you know, got, got tons of guys, got like Taylor Hawkins to gig with like, Sass Jordan, and then that led to his gig with Alanis. He got him a gig with Alanis oh, okay, Morissette, right. and that got in the gig with obviously Foo Fighters. So, you know, he has some legendary kind of like a link. And uh, and so through him, I ended up getting through Faulkner. Faulkner recommended me to, to Barry Squire, and Barry Squire then started audition, you know, recommending me to auditions. And so he was an agent. Uh, yeah, he works. I actually work. Barry is a weird phenomenon. And sadly, you know, he, those calls don't come like they used to. Barry doesn't get those calls because there aren't any labels. They were paying to hire right, someone to right. put a band together. But it used to be a big deal and very common. And it was that matter of like, can you get on Barry's list? You know, do you look cool? Can you play all styles? Can you play this style? Can you can you fit into this mold? You know, it's like it was a, you know, it was that criteria you always hear about. You know? So were you on a roster with yep. him? Mm-hmm. Okay. Of like hundreds of people probably. And then the more you'd show up and... You know, as you'd whittle it down, you'd be like the two guys left. You know, it'd be like, okay, I'm going to remember this kid. And then you get more calls, you know. And right. So even if you didn't make the audition, yeah. you or, were still you know, narrowed down. Yeah, you go like, oh, yeah, this guy can play. He's got a vibe. He learns the music. He's thorough. He's professional. Mm-hmm. So you eventually you start getting more calls. You know, you get the right. better calls for the better gig. So ultimately, Barry is the guy who got me the Chris Cornell gig. Okay. You know? Wow. But, That's awesome. How did you end up in Boston? You were at North Texas. Well, you're originally from New York. I'm originally from New York, an upstate New York town called Potsdam. And uh, I went to University of North Texas for undergrad. I actually was, you know, roommates with Jim Riley, the the, the local hero of Nashville from the Rascal Flats. Um, uh, and um, uh, many other great drummers, you know, were there. Keith Carlock. And I mean, you know, I stayed, was studying with Ed Sof and... Uh, Blair Sinta was there, and I mean, I could just go on and on, and you know, probably not think of half the drummers, but you know, amazing drummers and percussionists, and you know, right, right, right. You know, you name it. The the pre, the pre, you know, the top of the, you know, the cream of the crop, whether it be drum corps, drum instructors, or the top marimbist now, or you know, the top symphonic, you know, they were all there, you know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so that was great environment. And from there, I went to University of Miami, and while I was at University of Miami for my masters. Um, I was, uh, I went home to Potsdam, New York to, for Christmas and, uh, like the holidays and a buddy of mine who was living in Boston playing in a band that was on Columbia maybe, or, you know, some big record label is, and they were local heroes bands. I played drums with a couple of the guys and one of my best friends ever was in the band. And, and this guy, Dave Gibbs was like, you know, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a couple artists in Boston, you know, there's all these people getting signed and they're looking for drummers and they're not enough good drummers. And he's like, you know, you're a great drummer and you play a lot like this kid named Stacy Jones, who is playing in a band called Letters to Cleo. Um, and he's like, if you could play like him, you would just get any gig. And he's like, and he's like, and you, everyone says that in Boston. And then he's like, and you play like him. But what was funny is, you know, this is, I had been in college for like six years. So he hadn't seen me play it since I was like 16 at like some beer blast, you know? And, and he was remembering you exactly. that time. And I hadn't played in a cover band since. I hadn't played rock and roll since. I was playing jazz and big band and timpani and drumline and, right, you know. Right, right. So I was in a whole different mindset, you know, yeah. fusion and, you know, brushes. And so he said, 
you know, you look like this guy. I remember you play like this guy. I'm going to get you the, the audition. And I thought, okay, whatever, let me know. And I went back to college after, you know, it was like January, mid-January, preparing for this semester to come, my last semester. And uh, What was your degree at what we were studying? It was an orchestral performance. So I had to do like a legit recital, you know, marimba, yeah, yeah, yeah. timpani, multi-percussion. I was One playing. triangle piece. Yep, that's it. One note. Um <laughs> Actually, Brendan Buckley from Shakira was one of my accompanists. He played vibes on some Bob Becker multi-percussion piece. Nice. <laughs> um, but um, so I got back and I got a call and I got a record sent to me with this band, Larissa Cleo, from the manager of this girl, Julianne Hatfield, who at the time was on the cover of all kinds of magazines. And mm-hmm. she was super cool and her record done well. And she had a single called My Sister that I was hearing on the college radio. And, mm-hmm. and you know, as I was trying to get hip, you know, in, in Miami, when I was miles away from what was going on, I was listening to the college radio station. I, I knew this song. And the manager sent me this record by this band called Larissa Cleo and said, if you can play like this guy, you know, you'll get the gig. And I listened to it and I thought, yeah, the drumming's brilliant. And I played just like that. I would play. I would play those parts. It's like I can, you know. I listened to it once, and I said, "I can't wait to listen to this again." This is a great yeah, band. Cool. And um, he's they flew, flew me up. I Tracy Bonham was the other artist on Island. I think I'm not sure. Maybe Interscope. I think Island. Anyway, I can't remember. But she was looking for a drummer, and Stacy had played with her a little bit. Stacy had played with Juliana, or you know, they liked him. So I flew up both management, like labels paid to fly me up to audition for both Juliana and Tracy. And I auditioned for both of them and I got, you know, I met Stacy mm-hmm. and we totally hit it off. He was from Texas. And so we had all the similar connections and he was just brilliant guy and we were just best of friends and been ever since. I met letters to Cleo and yeah. loved them like family and was like, I came back and I thought, well, I have a semester left to go and now I'm moving to Boston. You know, when that's done, I'm moving to Boston. Okay. And all I had left to do was a recital because I had done all my coursework, luckily. So all I had was like a two-credit recital. Yeah, right. So I had a whole semester, and I was doing like Bartok Sonata for two pianos and percussion, which was going to take up half the recital, and that's like a major undertaking. It's like two percussionists, two pianists, and it's impossible. You know, it's like one of the harder pieces for piano. So I was all prepared to like spend the semester working this monumental piece up. Mm-hmm. And I had all the time in the world to do it. And then I get a call. You got the gig with Juliana. Like, she, she loved it. You're hired. And I was like, wow. And they're like, yeah, it starts in like two weeks. We want to get you up there. And then we're going to yeah. take you to, we're gonna Europe, Europe for two weeks. And then there's like a whole summer tour and, and uh, you know, a pre-tour in the U.S. And there's a summer tour. And so I was literally like, wow. And I had to go to all my instructors and say, like, I was an assistantship. So I was getting paid to go to school. I was yeah, getting, you know. Yeah, yeah. So that was, a, but luckily I had an instructor named Gary Green, who was an amazing guy who Steve Houghton and a lot of other great drummers, right. you know, Steve. cite as yeah. a really inspirational, mm-hmm. com, you know, conductor and just musician. So Gary was beautiful, great guy. And he just said, you know, you got to do this. You got to go. And oh, it was amazing. Wow. And he said, you know, just do me one favor, come back and get the degree. Promise me, you know? Yeah. Which is really cool. It meant a lot. And, you know, he actually just retired this year. So anyway. Um, Did that happen? Did you end up coming back? Yeah. Yeah, I actually, uh, I was just telling somebody recently because they were like, how did that work? So basically I, I, I shipped out, you know, bye, you know, I left my car there. I left everything there. Bye. You know, I call, I got, I I left my drum, I sold my drum set. I didn't bring anything with me. I flew up to Boston with like a box and a bag, you know, I mean, I was in college and next thing you know, literally like three weeks later, I was playing on Conan O'Brien, you know, and I was playing on one of the biggest shows called The Word to an estimated like 6 million viewers went all over Europe opening with Faith No More and Julian and a bunch of other people and so it was like whoa I was like it was crazy you know and yeah so it was like literally like 3 weeks later like they had a party in Miami like 
to watch me play on Conan O'Brien, which was a really big deal back then, you know? Oh, right, right, so right. it was literally like school was full on in session. I was like, one minute I'm there, next minute I'm Conan O'Brien. It was bizarre. Right. And um, so that was awesome. And I got my endorsements, you know, I got drumsticks and cymbals. And it was like, whoa, man, it was just boom, I was in it, you know? And Stacy was very helpful and like, this is what you do. And, and, I, and they were really sweet, you know, as far as like, you know, critiquing, like, you know, because there was a certain element of like, wow, I haven't played rock and roll. I've been playing, I've been in music school. I was going to say, but was this the plan all along? Or it was. It was. It was the plan. The plan was I played rock and roll all through high school. I mean, I, I got my first gig when I was like nine or, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. I, you know, I made like, you know, my dad still has a, my $2 from that first gig. So I got my first gig when I was nine. So all I did was rock and roll and blues and jazz and all kinds of stuff through. So when I got to college, it was like, okay, I'm going to let that sit. And that was really what was, you know, Dr. Shatrome at North Texas was like, you know, get all this other stuff together. You mm-hmm. got that together. Learn all this stuff. And right. then figure out what you want to do. Right. So I could have gone a bunch of, bunch of different ways, you know? Yeah. And, and, but I always knew I wanted to rock. But I was going to yeah. eat my vegetables and then get dessert, you know? Yeah. And I knew I had to get a master's degree because if I didn't get a master's degree, the undergrad meant nothing. And it's, I was right. Luckily, my dad's a professor and, you know, my parents were an academic. So I was luckily, I, I was like, you didn't have a choice. Like, I had to go. And I'm glad I did it because, you know, to be fair, I haven't used it, but... Any job, you know, now that I, I look at it, whether it be a college level or, you know, I'm, teach, I'm on staff at Musicians Institute, and it's like, you got to have that higher degree, you know, right, what I mean? to right. teach the level below you, you know what I mean? So, an undergraduate, your major was music education? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Which I know Jim. Yeah, we was. were, Jim and I were freshmen. We were roommates. Okay. We were all right. in all the same classes singing. Okay. Yeah, all, yeah. And then to, orchestral percussion. Uh, well, orchestral performance was performance. the mass, yeah, which, which covered like, you know, you know, yeah, playing oh, in symphonies cool. and playing in orchestras. But I was playing in the big band, the top big band at Miami. And I was, my job was to, my assistant ship was to instruct the Hurricane Drumline. So I was the caption head of the Drumline. Right, I just parts. saw a video of you uh, yesterday. It, it was uh, just Drumline mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. I, you know, as I'm trying to wrap my head around you and figure out what's, you know, what you've done. Huh? And I see the, the, the drum corps thing. I was like, wow, I didn't know you did that. Yeah. Yeah. I actually became like a specialist by accident. When I got there, I w- I'd never done drumline ever. So it was a good, it was a good, it was a great way. That was a good learning lesson of how to like adapt, you know, like I literally just played marching snare drum for a whole semester. You know, and I got with, I had marching sticks in my hands and I was, I would sit with any, any drumline member who would be willing to hang with me to teach me how the ropes, you know what I mean? I was going to learn that. And then that summer I marched drum corps and, um, and then I ended up by the end, I was, te- I was one of the instructors on staff at North Santa drumline. So it was crazy. And then I got an assistantship that paid to, and I had an assistant under me, you know, it was a whole thing. So I became a drumline specialist, oh, not overnight, but you know, quickly. Going back to uh, growing up, what was it that led you to music? Were your parents musicians? No, no. My dad always wanted to play drums. His dad was a cop. My dad was a sculptor. And his dad would never let him play drums. The art just kind of happened when he got scholarships. It was like, okay. And so when I stressed that I wanted to play drums, my dad was all over it. You know, just all about it. And... You know, uh, fortunately, at the college where my dad was the profe- you know, professor of drawing and sculpture, um, there was a great music school called Crane School of Music. And so I would just walk over there, and uh, my dad 
did a deal where he traded us a pet drawing for lessons and with this great instructor named Jim Petersack, who actually was teaching Dave Weckl around the same time he was oh, teaching me yeah, as a kid. I did, I did see that. And uh, among many other students, you know, Vinny in like 1989 or 90 was like revamping his technique and would fly out to the middle of nowhere where I grew up and wow. study with Petersack. So he's taught all these great drummers, you know, and all yeah. these great drummers who came to Crane School of Music, Tony Vergarosa and all these other guys and a lot of industry you know, but how old were you when you started taking lessons with him? Probably like eight. Probably about eight. You know? Yeah, really little. Was there anything special about his teaching technique or something? It was just a, it was just sitting down with him and like literally the sound he got out of a drum set was like, you know, I literally had, and his hands are beautiful. And he was just, there was no no level. That, it was, there was nothing but the, the finest. You know, his hands were absolutely honed to perfection i'll never forget that brushes everything sounded so good mm. so i literally there was no it was like the perfect the right information at the very beginning okay. you know? so the minute i heard like he tuned drums so beautifully to this day i can still hear it mm. you know so when you hit, we hit a drum the way it's his symbol it was the sound mm. that's all i can say i was just so fortunate to hear it's like perfect technique through, almost through osmosis just being there oh, and yeah. listening oh and he was a stickler you know everything was particular and everything was you know i had to be very particular but but he was fun and funny, and he still is. It was great for Pas- I did PASIC last year, which was a really big deal. It was a big oh, yeah, moment for, sure. for me and terrifying and wonderful at the same time. And it <laughs> went really great. And I've run into a bunch of guys here who saw it, which is great. You know, it's yeah. amazing how many people, you know, come to those things. And I got to, they said, you know, you got to pick someone to preside over your clinic, you know. And at the time, what's funny about and I said, uh, you know, I was going to get somebody from the industry. And I thought, oh, I'm going to get Peter Zach. And I called Peter Zach. He's like, He's like, I'll be there, babe. You know, so Peter Zach actually got to like announce me for PASIC. And what's amazing about that is I think he was more excited than I was. You know what I mean? Like he was more excited and sitting up front and beaming and like, you know, giant smile and like, you know, cheering. And so that was pretty special. And, you know, what's funny is when I was studying with him, he was the president of PAS. So the first magazine I ever subscribed to was Percussive Arts Society, you know, Percussive And and give me his name one more time. Jim Peter Zach. Okay. Yeah, he's a he was a massive clinician at that time for for Premier and Zildjian, and then he became a big guy for Yamaha and Zildjian, and now he's Sabian, and I believe Yamaha still. So yeah, so he's a okay. he was always very active in the yeah. percussive arts. Yeah. So I got that early on, you know, that kind of right, thing. And right. I remember reading these Percussive Arts Society magazines because I had to subscribe if I was studying with him. Exactly. And I was like, what's this drum corps stuff? And what's marimba? And wow, percussion ensemble? And then, of course, as I got a little older, I would go to all the concerts there. And Peter Zach studied under Sandy Feldstein mm-hmm. and was at the Manhattan School mm-hmm. and I believe was the f- in the first percussion ensemble ever. Mm-hmm. Did you feel like when you were that when you were that age and you just could not get enough? When yes, you saw the percussion. Oh yeah, okay. no, I was I was obsessed. I, I mean, I'm not a very I'm you know not very religious, but maybe spiritual. But I think the only time I've ever really prayed to God and meant it, I remember was saying, I was praying at about seventh grade that I wouldn't lose my path because all my friends who were drummers in fifth sixth grade who we were obsessed and we you know when they get a new drum set you know I'd show them how to set up and wow you have a Zildjian cymbal and you know I have a Ludwig stand and it was so cool and you know I got a Ludwig set with my first set which was cool but you know I didn't have any Zildjian cymbals or anything cool so it was like oh you have a Zildjian cymbal and so it was this ex- 
excitement and we were just all, you know, about it and all about rock and roll and just so just, you know, no different than we are now, really. But at, yeah. a, at a very young age, it was like, wow, I, I see the light. Yes. And so I remember, you know, as I started getting to middle school, like seventh and eighth grade, these guys mm-hmm. started getting girlfriends or playing baseball or soccer or mm-hmm. football and they were gone. They just mm-hmm. let it go. It was gone. Right. I was like, how could you do that? Yeah. I just remember saying, please let me just never let it go. Let me just stay the course. Let me just, if I can, if you, if you, if you grant me anything, just yeah. grant me that, that power to keep on, you know what right. I mean? And I remember, I remember that moment, you know, I was like yeah. so into it when I was a little kid and, uh, yeah, I guess, you know, and do you still feel like that? Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. I'm obsessed. I went to forks and I sat in there and, you know, hit, you know, pulled on every Ludwig snare drum, even though I've heard it a million times. And I was like, oh, God, this sounds so good. And there's that the new Ludwig copper drum I got in this tour. And I'm just obsessed with it. And it was like, God, I just, when I thought like you couldn't do better than the black beauty or Superphonic, they made this thing out of copper and it sounds just as good or better than both those. And it's got a whole nother thing. And yeah. so it's yeah. never, never ends, you know? And I was there with a student who is kind of sniffing around Peisty and I was like, well, check these out. And I just went through and he's like, what would you recommend? And we pulled all these hi hats down. And it was like, I can you know, it's just, and, you know, and I love Ludwig drums and they have a beautiful selection of Ludwig drums and I like my babies, you know, like family, you know, wherever I go, you know, there they are. And, and then there's all, you know, it's just, I, I, I don't just, you know, I love all of it, you know, so it was cool to, it's, yeah, it's, I never, you know, it was great because I'm dealing with this rehab of this house, which is completely stressful and it was great to just go and go like, oh, drums, you know, and this is Right, cool. right. Do you, I mean, while you're making this transition, is there ever a time that you get a chance to sit down and do some, do any playing? While I'm here, you mean? Yeah. With the house? You know, no, I haven't played drums at all, but you know, I did come off a six and a half week tour, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. So really I've only been here for like two and a half weeks, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, I haven't played drums for two and a half weeks. I'm flying to Maryland. You know, I just talked to the singer in the band. He's like, dude, I'm dying. We've got to play. And I'm like, I know, man, I can't wait. And, yeah. you know, you finish a tour and the band's just firing on all pistons, right, whoever right. it is, you know. Right. And so, you know, you can't, you're like, when are we going to get back in the ring? So, you know, but I did pull out one of some pair of sticks, you know, from my bag. And I was sitting here playing and it's like, oh, this feels good. I forgot what that feels like. But sometimes I think it's healthy to get away from, you know, put it down for a minute. I think it's healthy to like take a break from drums. And then, right, you know, right. when I sit back down, it's just so so much more invigorating. And I have some students who are older, you know, maybe more, you know, professional drummers who will come to me for lessons. I think maybe just step away for like a week, you know? You know what? I think that's where I'm coming from because I'm in that spot right now where I'm practicing a lot and trying to work out some things that I've been frustrating lately. And um, I don't feel like I'm making a lot of progress. Yeah. Sometimes it's better to just like go to an art museum, you know, go to the Frist or go to like some cool yeah. thing and go like, wow, that's really inspiring and get inspired by other things. You know, I think that's, to me, that's refreshing. Just go live, you know, and what I'm doing right now, you know, what I'm doing is like, I'm growing. I'm putting myself in this completely stressful pressure cooker of like, you know, I'm completely out of my element, staying in, you know, living out of a bag, you know, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm in hell right now, renovating this house and dealing with, you know, weird, you know, crooked contractors and, you know, and, um, at the same time, it's like, you know, you grow from that and, you know, it's good to get out of the, out of the element. And I think, you know, um, you, you know, maybe you become, you know, the more you live, I think you can apply that to your playing sometimes, yeah. but I do find some drummers run into a wall. And for me personally, you know, I was practicing, you know, all this kind of heavy double bass stuff years before the Manson gig, just kind of getting into that and trying to just work on that. And it kind of yeah. led to that. And then when I was doing that gig, obviously I was playing it very heavy and doing the double bass stuff and prepping for that gig before it. And after I'd set up like a little jazz, old vintage Gretsch round mm-hmm. badge in my 
extra bedroom and with like old K's and I would just practice it super quiet at night and then in the morning, like, you know, I wake up like half naked and practice or before I go to sleep, you know, and trying to make it burn at a really quiet level. And to be fair, like I was just getting into this space with these drums. I was so inspired by these symbols and the sound of these drums in this room and playing so quietly. Honestly, I think that suddenly started inspiring my rock playing, you know, these things I was learning. If I was practicing rock, I don't think my rock playing or my heavier playing, I should say, would have... I was coming up with all these ideas and it was directly as a result of, co- of breaking it way down with this little Gretsch set and playing super quietly and, you know, thinking of it, completely changing my thought process, you know? So right. I think that's another thing healthy to just like set up a drum set that's entirely different than what you're used to and yeah. get your head to think differently and maybe just set something up you never would. And that might inspire you. And then when you get back on that horse that you're used to, that rock gig or that rock right. setup, you might, you know, it'll change where you're coming from. And I think that's right. a lot of us, we get in that rut of trying to practice the same thing over and over again or on the same set. And I think there's an inspiring way to shake things up. And I'm sh- I guess what I'm saying is in the big picture, even though I'm here dealing with all this, I'm shaking things up in my life a little bit. You know what I mean? And that can, right. so I think, you, can can lead to change, you know, a good, good thing. When you get back to playing, it's going to be just this release this amazing certainly i've had it before actually i mean some of the best things i've ever done were like i was turning i was flipping a house in los angeles once and and basically by myself so i was like on the brink of insanity and i don't say that lightly i was losing my mind you know what i mean i was in a house all day long i was wearing the same clothes for like a month you know and but but are you handy do you you get it yeah oh yeah yeah and i had to for this because it was a project i was doing for my mother and trying to fix this house and get it ready for her and i was losing my mind i got a call from this big producer who was like yeah uh, we got your number and why don't you come play on this record for these kids? And I went in and I just, just I was like literally covered with paint and soot in my hair and like, you know, goggles. And uh, you know, I was like delirious. I hadn't played drums in a month. And I was like two o'clock. Yeah. Okay. I'll be there. And I like ran in, sh- you know, showered and came in. My hands were throbbing from hammering and painting. My arm, I was right. just a mess mentally yeah. and physically. And I played my ass off, oh, you know, awesome. I was really into it. And, um, it was because I think I was completely, I'd separated myself from that for a yeah. little while, you know? Do you, I know I talked to some, uh, there's times I talk to players and there's, they're like, I have the facility, I have this, there's not a whole lot I can do right now. When I have, because of my time restraints, mm-hmm. to spend behind the kit outside of gigs and recording. But if I do have the time, I spend it this way or that way or this way. And it's always interesting to me to find out how... People find the time to, or, or what they do during that time, mm-hmm. uh, listening, getting sounds, um, maybe going down a certain path like like you did. I'm going to set up this small kit. I'm going to try and explore something completely different yeah. than my current gig. Right. Um, or prior to that, literally, it was just like, I'm going to do double bass for like, you know, I'm going to practice double bass. Right. And, How did that come about? What was um, the inspiration for that? And had you played double bass? No. I got a double pedal I ordered when I was probably 14, 15, and I got it, and I played it a little bit, and it was weird. And, of course, it was a crappy double pedal when it, back then. It was an early, you know, those weird DWs, even though they were genius at the time, they were still dodgy. I did have a double bass set, but I never played it. I almost never used that other pedal. Um, I just got it because it looked cool, you know? <laughs> and I started playing this, this after that, I, you know, I kind of dismissed that and I got a, this smaller Yamaha kind of kit of the jour of the time. And, and I got a double pedal and I played it for like maybe a month and I started becoming very reliant. I relied on it, you know, oh. for, and when I was in jazz band and stuff, I go to play a fill and I felt very naked without it. And I thought, ah, oh, this is no good. Uh. And, and I had been there a couple other times where I thought oh, I should probably trim down and 
when I did, my playing got better. So I thought, you know, I should just really focus on getting this one foot together. And I don't know, maybe someday. And then, to be fair, I never really did. And then, ever again. And then I did a gig with Chris Cornell. And for two years, we did all the rock stuff. And then he did a hip-hop record at the end, which was bizarre, with Timberland. And, and as I'm learning these tracks to repair, I thought... I went out and we did like some preview shows around tour with Lincoln Park and I did it with one pedal. So it was a lot of like consecutive, you know, you know, bass drums in a row and I could do it kind of with one pedal, but I thought, you know, I could really do this better if I had two and just, mm-hmm. you know, space out between two very evenly. And I thought, oh, I'll borrow somebody's double pedal in my studio and see what happens. And I thought, oh yeah, that's the trick and it'll be way more inspiring. It'll mm-hmm. open a door for me. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I always say, try to get out of your comfort zone if you can, when you can. And so I was kind of, you know, sniffing around and, and uh, then I started incorporating that more, and, I, and it worked out great. It was super inspiring. How long did it take you before you felt like? Well, that was simple. That was just very basic, you know, six, yeah. you know, slow sixteenths. But for this kind of hip hop programming, it sounded like machine like. It was great. So that wasn't that weird, and the results were great. Cornell stoked. I was stoked. We played in Leno a couple of days, a couple of weeks after I first started. And I, I thought, I'm going for it, and I did it. And I was super happy with how it came out. Oh, I was cool. like, wow, that was worth getting, cool. you know, getting into that that hornet's nest to kind of grow and make this cool. And when that summer tour ended, I thought, well, what am I going to do? We're not that tour. Ultimately, those three years of Cornell, we knew he was going to take a break and possibly do Soundgarden. I thought, well, what am I going to practice? I can practice now for a while, for a few months. And I thought, well, why not give this double bass a whirl, you know? And so I went and I got with a bunch of different guys in L.A. and everyone had their own opinion of what you do. And I got, you know, with a couple cats and they said, oh, yeah, I would do it like this. That's how I do it. You know, a lot of younger guys. And so I just started sitting in a room and they said, bottom line is you just got to sit there and do this. You know, just, you know, 16 is just, you know, ad nauseum. And like Joey Jordison watches TV shows and does it and then speeds it up and watches another program and does it. And, you know, literally we'll sit there for hours. And I was like, OK, well, that's a dedication. All right. So I would go in and maybe do <laughs> did like Did you a, find out what television shows he was watching? I did not, actually. Okay. I probably could have asked yeah, him. I thought you were dedicated, man. Well, you know, I'm still working. Game Game of Thrones uh, you know, at 120 BPM. Probably then, some creepy, scary Frankenstein and Halloween. And it's probably you know what I think he's a brony. He might, it's probably maybe, My Little Pony. Maybe you know season that one. or like yeah, it could be you know. I, <laughs> I would you, know, you never know. Maybe keep the yin to the yang of this creepiness. No, God bless him, great drummer. <laughs> but um, so. I was trying to go for that kind of area. You know, I was listening to bands like like uh, Hatebreed or um, Fear Factory, which is some great stuff. And obviously some of the Slipknot stuff that was just, you know, maybe out of my reach, but inspiring. It was all out of my reach at the time, but I was like, I'm going to, you know, kind of go for that. But I was also just just trying to just go, it was like calisthenics. And it was like, you know, you know, building up. Again, kind of going from the known to the unknown mm-hmm. and trying to get, you know, mm-hmm. and kind of getting out of my comfort zone and just trying to grow just like I did with drum corps. Okay. And then the more you do that, and I talk about that in clinics, it's like, how do you get gigs? Well, you know, you got to be diversified and you got to be able to learn how to learn is one, uh, kind of a term I, br- I got to sure, come up with. Sure, I so I thought like with the drum corps thing, it's like I dedicated all this time to learn how to, to learn that, right, you know? Right, right. And since I've spent all these time getting, the more you get out of your comfort zone, the more you learn how to learn things quicker Mm -hmm. Um, whether it be learning how to play bass or learning how to play piano or all these different things and so percussion is a great thing especially if you're in music school I thought music school and so I thought you know this double bass I approach the same way very systematically and just you know no bullshit I'm going to go in I'm going to play this 16th notes I'm going to crank up that metronome and I'm going to do it for a half hour and a half hour is a long time if you're doing double bass Mm -hmm. it's painful and Mm -hmm. agonizing and not fun but I would just every first I'd start out and that's what I would do every day and I did that for a long time. I don't know how long, maybe a year, maybe not quite. And 
I started, you know, my next gig was Foreigner. Oh, my next gig was Vertical Horizon. I did vertical, a tour for Vertical Horizon. And so I went out and I brought a double pedal. And it was fun as hell. And I had a lot of solos and it was like, cool. Got, you know, I got a, it's funny that he's here. Mm-hmm. Big Vertical Horizon fan. No way. Yeah. When, uh, when did you tour with them? I did, um, I did the, last re- the last record called Burning the Days. Um, yes. Yeah, so I did Burning the Days. So I'm the drummer on Burning the Days. And I shared it with one other dude named Neil Pert, who's on two tracks. Which is kind of bizarre. I think he's on two tracks, but yeah. yeah so yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. I did that record. You know, that's a that's a crazy Nashville story. But basically, I saw Vertical Horizon in the basement. I was playing upstairs Middle East with a band called Jack Drag. Kind of sounded like Beck it was my band. We just signed a publishing deal, and downstairs was this band that was playing and in at the Middle East in Boston, a big venue, and they sounded good. And I was like killing time waiting for our sound check time, and I went down and I listening and they were good there was two acoustic players and i thought oh, this is total dave matthews vibe you know these guys are and they were good songs and i was like that's a big room and i was like oh these guys are pretty good and and i'm looking at the drummer and, and there's a certain style of drumming in north texas um and uh you know very molar kind of very like matt chamberlain kind of uh ed Sof really you know mm-hmm. a lot of the way that you know you see these guys play they have this certain kind of like almost dance like quality of their molar stroke you know and it's mm-hmm. very kind of similar you know and i saw this guy and i was like man that dude went to north texas <laughs> i <laughs> could tell, tell. Right. and as i get closer he's like Sutter. and i'm like through the mic and i'm like what is going on man and it was this dude named darren and he went by darren x and uh he was actually i think jim riley's first roommate um after me because i think he you know he and jim didn't get along it was pretty funny and um so Darren kind of dropped out of the whole program and I hadn't seen him in years, you know, but somehow through some series of events, series of events, he got, he and the bass player were brought up from North Texas to play with Matt, who was based out of, I think, Virginia or something. He's New England based, but he, I think he went to, maybe, maybe yeah, I think he went to, I don't see he went to college around there, but anyway, he's, he's from Worcester, you know, yeah. right outside of Boston, but. This is a long story, so this you may want to edit or cut out entirely. I don't care, you know. <laughs> no, totally but I'll tell you the story because I don't think I've ever told it. But so basically, because it covers when you're national folk, but um, and this is as true as I can remember it, and I have a pretty good memory. Um, so what's weird is when I played on Conan O'Brien. This yeah. just shows how things can unravel and get weird. Uh, I played on Conan O'Brien. Uh, this this band was on tour around that time, like a year before, yeah. and they were staying in hotel rooms, like five guys to a hotel room, the vertical horizon, yeah. and, you know, fighting it out, playing up and down the coast, you know? And the Julian Hatfield performance came on with Conan, and Matt was like, moved by the drumming, let's say. My first time on TV, I'm green as a leaf, right, right, right. And Matt sees it, and he's like, wow, that drummer's great. And the bass player's like, yeah, I know that guy. He's like, you know that dude? He's like, yeah, I went to North Texas. That's yeah. Sutter. And I didn't know the bass player. He's you know, a little younger, I guess. And so he remembered that. It's yeah. really weird. And so when I walk up closer, they introduce me to the guys, and the bass player's like, oh, hey, what's up, man? I don't know if you remember me, but I went to North Texas. And, and he was like, hey, Matt, that's the guy who was on the... Th-. And Matt was like... You're the guy. Oh, right there. Right there. On the gig. And he was like, it's sound check. Yeah. He's like, you're the guy. And I was like, I'm the guy. How He's, long ago had was it before that time that you guys met, that you were on Conan? Yeah, it was. Well, it must have been a year before, or maybe oh, really? eight months. So it had been a year, but he remembered it. He remembered it. He it was awesome. bizarre. I mean, I, I don't have quite the time lineage, but yeah, it was, had to be 97, so it was maybe a year or more. Wow. And so he remembered it. And I was like, uh, okay, whatever. Didn't think anything. I went upstairs. I did my sound check. Um, later that night, I came down. And I think Matt got my number, or yeah. Darren got my number. Yeah. And I came down. The place was mobbed. I was like, these dudes are going to be huge. 
Mm-hmm. Like everyone was singing along. You couldn't mm-hmm. fit another body in there. Right, right. It sounded like Dave Matthews, who was the man at the time. Mm-hmm. And actually, I think working with Matt and like he had produced or played on or some of the guys, Carter Beaufort's on their first live record or first oh, record. Wow. So they were kind of hanging in that circuit. And so Matt, so Darren calls me maybe a few weeks later and goes, Hey man, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm done with this. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Dude, this gig is like going to be gigantic. These guys are going to be huge. He's like, ah, I just don't feel it. You know, I just don't feel it. I think I'm going to move to Colorado and just give up drums. And mm-hmm. I, you know, and I mentioned this and Matt wanted me to call you cause he wants to see if you, he wants you to play drums. And I was like, yeah. weird. And so I said, well, you know, um, I have my own band, you know, we're signed to a&M and it's my baby and we got yeah, a publishing right. deal and it's yeah. like all I ever wanted mm-hmm. and I don't even know if we're signed to A&M yet but we're about to be or we're close recorded and so it's a long story but it's anyway it's true but so he Matt started calling me and long story short Matt kept calling me and like literally calling me and going like dude you're my drummer I don't think you understand you have to do this you yeah. have to do this it's gonna yeah. be huge and you're gonna be my drummer and that's it yeah. you know you have to do this and and so he's like, just come to this next gig, and I would. And, he, and, you know, and he's like, dude, we got two more weeks till he's out of here. You you got to do this gig. And I was like, dude, this is my baby. I can't. It's like you know, yeah, yeah. I show up at the gig. While I'm at Miami, Ed Toth is a student at Miami, an undergraduate student, and he I think is in like my assistant's percussion ensemble. Right. And with all due credit to, to Ed, was a bit of a slacker. You know, <laughs> I think he was like kind of he was playing in all the rock gigs. He was that guy, like Jim Bogus. If you don't know Jim Bogus, I don't know if you know Jim, but he played with the Dixie Chicks and Cheryl Crow. And Jim was that guy in North Texas. Gotcha. He was gotcha. the guy who couldn't be bothered with the curriculum and was just you know would maybe kind of you know saunter in and out of class when he could make it. But the rest of the time, he was he had his eye on the prize. He was playing, he was playing cover gigs, and Ed was playing all these rock bands around town in Miami. And, and so I knew he could cover it. I knew he was in Miami and Boston. I believe he was working. At, I know he was working at a record store. It was yes, uh, and he's been on this, on the podcast, and he's told the story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So so we had coffee, and um, I wonder if these two will line up. Uh oh. Um, But uh, (laughs) so we had coffee one time, I remember, and that was it. And you know, I don't think he was playing that much in town, really. I think he was just working at a store and just kind of not really playing. Uh, I think it was a Borders books. That's it. Yeah, I could, yeah. So, but he wasn't really. He had a full. He was a job. He had a job. He wasn't like right. playing around. Right, and right. but he was in Boston because his wife was doing something there at the time. I think or his girlfriend. So I walk up to this final show. It was at Mamakin. I'll never forget it. And they were playing, and it was like the stakes were high. And Matt went to meet with me after. And I walk up, and Ed Toth is standing there. It's before the show, and he looks at me, and he's like, "What are you doing here?" He's like, "What are you doing here? How do you know about this band?" And I was like. I actually know these guys. He's like, dude, this is my favorite band in the world. He's like, I love this band. He's like, I can't believe you know about this band too. Yeah. He's like, it's like, it was a secret because it was. And he was like, I play the record all the time at my, at the music store. He's like, I'm yeah, like yeah. their number one fan. Yeah. And I was like, I'm going to make your night, dude. <laughs> I was like, just stick around till after the show and I'll introduce you to him. And then yeah. Ed had the gig by like the end of the week. Yeah, yeah. And that's how it happened, yeah. That's awesome. So I'm that's still waiting awesome. for my forerunner that I, hopefully he's going to buy me someday or nice, just a medium Toyota, maybe, Ed, okay. you know, if you want. Sure, I mean, sure. It's official. You could just, you know. It's going to be slightly used yeah. or is it? I prefer it to be, you know, maybe a yeah, slightly used, but maybe like a year old, maybe. Okay, okay. But yeah. Carfax. Sure. Just make sure it's yeah. got a good. That would be cool, you know. <laughs> but uh, so anyway, so that happened and that was amazing. And, and of course, I'm, the rest is history. And, you know, we met the Doobie Brother drummer from that and we had a connection and he gets the gig with the Doobie Brothers and bam, here we are like a bazillion years later and, you know, 
So that was that's one of those moments where you know you just feel good about going. I could say I could point somebody in the right direction, and it just it was like you yeah. know kismet, all everything. So that just goes to show how weird that is. And so fast forward, I'm starting this new musical with the same guy who recommended me to Juliana Hatfield. Dave okay. now lives in LA mm-hmm. and uh, he, we and I had done a bunch of stuff like Josie and the Pussycats soundtrack together with Babyface and a bunch of other little weird projects and he's you know um, an old manager of mine was on the project and, and, and Dave was you know called in for music directing for a new musical called Rock of Ages right and right. so I kind of he said you're gonna you know we, we'd arranged all these parts for Josie and the Pussycats so he's like dude I need to do the same thing we're gonna get together we're gonna arrange all these parts and we're gonna come up with this score for this musical and then we gotta do this quick so the dancers can come up with choreography and then we have a preview it's gonna be an hour long show we're gonna do like a month and a half of it in LA at a bar and then if it gets picked up we'll do it two hour you know two movements what was involved in getting the arrangements together it was just you know, it's like take a song like uh, any way you want right. it that, and the heat of the moment and mm-hmm. the your heart and my heart you know and it's like how do we segue those and we were literally in those each theme starts with like you know has a mm-hmm. you know has to do with a theatrical element and so it was literally like how do we piece this together to make sense to follow the script and that's how it started. And then it would be a dance routine to a certain song and one of the guys would sing his song about it. Were you guys writing things out so that people could have it down the road? We were recording. Just recording. We were just recording everything. We record it and then we edit it, record it, and we edit it, and then we comes in and then sometimes we could edit it, you know, there and then other times we just come in after we record everything. Then they get into the the compo- you know, the the uh, score, you know, the the uh, script writer, he would okay it, and then we bam, it'd have to go right to the dancers, and the dancers were literally learning the choreography as we well, yeah. as quick as we were recording it. just got the gig with the Rembrandts so I was kind of coming back and forth doing a gig stepping it up just like a month two month long like tour with the Rembrandts and I, I get a text and it's Matt Scandal who I don't know where he got my number and I, he's like dude I found you you're playing on my next record uh, and I was playing Rock of Ages I'm playing a double bass Ludwig silver sparkle kit with like Sybil super high no shirt like you know like makeup on my face like you know and like maybe a bandana and that mm-hmm. was my outfit, like, you know, mm-hmm. basically wearing like a little short shorts and like, you know, and I was on stage playing behind it. The band was actually on the stage, the first production. And Matt went with his wife, who's an actress, and they saw the show and he was like, I found you, dude. And so he was like, <laughs> you're playing on my next record. And that's how that happened. And that's how I ended up playing on that. I think that might have been the first Vertical Horizon record we had yeah it was burning the days yeah interesting yeah wow, yeah that's so funny that's it's amazing how a lot of people it is for a lot of people um i was i had i had drinks last night with ron lavella who's the drummer now right and ron right. was like yeah we, had, we went through every track and he was like dude i love this and i was like wow yes. it's so cool to have ron yes. who i love and respect telling me about how much he likes playing the parts and yeah yeah but the coolest was actually meeting neil pert and having him talk about it which was oh, just the weirdest so you thing you did ever. meet you met him i then? did meet him it was, I'll, I'll tell the story really quick but it was like basically we were, went to, I went to go see Rush. Matt was like, I have tickets to see Rush at the Nokia. And of course I'm waiting in line to get tickets. And it's like, you know, Rush in LA is like, imagine the list of dudes waiting for the VIP. It's like a who's who of past and present. Mm-hmm. The hottest dudes waiting for their VIP passes. Mm-hmm. But everyone knows nobody hangs out with Neil Peart generally, you know, and if you right. do, you don't talk about drums, you know? And so I go to the show with Matt and we're watching the show and it's great. And then after the intermission, which because they just do two sets now, Matt's like, Matt's like, dude, come with me. I just got better pass. And he gives me this like flossy pass. And we go down. Now we're literally like four feet from the stage and they come out and it's like mind blowing. And I'm there with like Neil Pert's like 
parents or his wife's parents who are older and his wife and his security guard who he talks about in all the books is who he rides with and we're meeting Michael everybody. or yeah, yeah and we're, yeah. he's a super cool guy and we're watching the show and I'm just like this is insane I'm like four feet away and I'm like dude this is insane mm. I'm like this is crazy I was like I will never get any closer to Rush in my life and then that's like actually you will and I was like uh oh <laughs> and so we finished the show and literally like bodyguard to some elevator and like I'm like downstairs at the Nokia and it was like okay this is getting weird you know I'm starting to freak out and I walked by and it was like you know Alex and Getty's room right as we walked down you know little rooms and then we walked down this hallway and we walked forever I mean we walked literally like I don't even, you just walk throughout the entire subsystem. You know, we're walking and walking and walking, you know, like a quarter mile. Like spinal tap. Yeah. And then there's Neil's door at the very end of middle of nowhere of this hockey arena basement, you know, whatever. And we walk in and there's Neil Pert and his wife and her parents and her friend and Neil just sitting there in a small room, probably no bigger than this, having a sip of McAllen, you know? And I'm sitting there and it's like, wow. And he introduced me. He said, very nice to meet you. It's Jason. He's a drummer. And, and I believe like Danny Carey saunters in with his girlfriend. And then I think that's Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And that's it in this room. And Neil's like joking about the show as though it was like a sporting event. Like I thought we pulled it out the second half, you know, I thought we, the first half was a little rough. We lost, you know, some footage, but I think, you know, whatever. And, um, we're chit chatting and I'm talking to Neil Pert's wife's friend and I'm like, this is cool. Right. And then at one point Matt says, Oh, by the way, um, Jason was the drummer on burning the days. And he just stands up and like faces off with me and is like, He's like, oh, he's like, oh my God. He's like, I love your playing. He's like, I absolutely love your playing. And it turns out that Matt was editing, was reading his, he was writing in his new book. He would send Matt each chapter and Matt would like help him yeah, pre-edit. Yeah, yeah, right, right, and right. Neil was doing the same for Matt's new record. The difference for me is I was on tour with Chris Cornell. I'd started recording the record with Smash Mouth. I'd gone through like three bands while I was, it was like through two years doing this. I was literally using Sabian and Vic Firth on half the record. And then the other half I'm using Regal Tip or, you know, using Spicy on the end. It's okay. that long of like, I've switched companies and, you know, oh, wow. over the course of like two and a half years. Yeah. And it was funny also in the beginning when I recorded the first few two tracks afterwards, Matt was like, I'm super stoked. And he's like, I just, I want you to know this record's going to be really great. And he's like, I didn't want to tell you, but Neil Peart's already played on two songs. So you're going to be in a record with Neil Peart, but I didn't want to tell you before. And I was like, mind blowing, right? So it was pretty cute. And so fast forward, here we are now. And Neil knows all these things, but I don't know any of them because I've literally gone in and played them in breaks. And I don't remember, I play it, we run it through. It's very learned. Matt's happy. I leave and I don't hear the, I don't hear the finished product. So Neil knows these songs better than me. So that was weird because he's going through these songs and talking about these parts. I don't remember, but it's just bizarre. Neil Pert's talking to me about my drum parts, first of all. Yeah. And I don't talk drums unless he approaches. Yeah. And he was all, <laughs> but he was excited about it. He's a really tall man and really mm-hmm. dark, you know, low voice. And I was just, was just weird. You know, I was like completely like paralyzed, but he basically completed and Matt's meanwhile, while he's telling me all this, Matt's sitting on a couch, like curled up in a ball, like laughing so hard. He can't, no sounds coming out because he knows that this must just be the most insane experience of my look life. On your face, yeah, <laughs> and and that's right there. And I remember he just and he said, "Well, he's like, I just want you to know, and I'll never forget." He said, "I'll I, I'll forever have the highest esteem for you as a drummer." Mm. And then turned back and like did this thing, and, and Matt looked at me. He's like, "Like like yeah." Oh, he said, just said that, and I was like, "Did you you just hear that?" Because I. Like, did he say that? You know, it sounded like a lyric off like hemispheres or something. <laughs> you know, it was very poetic how he said it. And it's like, I'll never forget that. And so that happened. And I was like, let's get, let's get out of here. You know, like, I don't want to like throw up or do something weird. And we opened the door, you know, we say goodnight and let him be. And we opened the door and there's literally a row of dudes. And it's like, you name it, like from Chad Smith to Taylor Hawkins to 
you know, Jose, you know, from Incubus to like, you know, to it's literally like 50, like literally 25, like the biggest drummers in LA lining the wall, waiting to get to Neil Peart. It was bizarre. It was so surreal. And I'm walking out of there talking to him about this record that we're playing on together. It was just so cool. And I think the next day or maybe that week I'm driving and I just remember hearing, thinking about it. And I was like, I guess this cold sweat broke over me. And it was like, just wow, this moment, yeah, the moment of like, yeah, the depth of that. That was just so heavy. You know, just think about that, you know? That's just, pretty amazing. It was man. pretty cool, yeah, that that happened. So I can thank Matt for that. And it was just great, pleasant. So do you ever have like those moments of self-doubt and, and, and you can pull from that experience? Oh, say, yeah. But wait a minute. Yeah. yeah. You have those all the time, you know? Is there one compliment or one thing that people tell you a consistent compliment that keeps coming up that describes your playing. It says, man, I really yeah. love no, this about you. I know where you're going. I mean, I always try to say to drummer, to musicians, I always say, you know, why did I, why did I get the gig? You know, I wait like a month into it or just to, just to know better, you know, or mm-hmm. I say like, you know, or why didn't I get the gig? If I say didn't get the gig, I'll always try to like inquire from somebody who was at the audition, you know, but just to go like, what is it that I'm, what's working? You know, what, mm-hmm. what is it? And always indefinitely. And I just say, it's just, always is just feel you know mm-hmm. it felt right it just felt right right away like mm-hmm. within right away you know and i've had that with auditions where the singer turns around right away and just looks at you and you get that look like i think i'm doing something right or you know foreigner jeff pilson was like yeah dude this you know in the first four bars you know it was like right, right. you can tell you yeah. can tell when you're playing with somebody you know and so that to me is a good comment because i tried you try to you try to be diverse and have enough experience and use your ears and the musicality and the technical to play at the right volume and the right push and pull and dictate and let them dictate. And, you know, all those things that come into making music, you try to be able to assimilate that quickly and be able to literally think on your toes so quick that when you're playing in these auditions, it's like they've never, they've always played with you. Like you've played this song with them your whole life. That's the, that's where you make them feel so comfortable, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that has, I think, a lot to do with feel. How you're able to make it right. feel and your feel, you know, affects their feel and ultimately the feel, if right. that makes sense. So I think that's the number one thing I get told all the time. And it's the best compliment I think you can get. I don't think about it all the time, but, you know, I think, you know. You had the fastest feet, man. No. And, you know, it's funny when you, you say that because one of the best compliments I ever got was Dave Lombardo. You know, from Slayer, who's arguably the best, you know, one of the most innovative and best double bass players ever, Mm -hmm. you know, and who has a great feel and great style. And he said, you know, as he wrote, he was like, dude, this feels killer, you know, Mm -hmm. and I'm playing fast stuff, you know, some of these songs. And it just goes to show you can play fast Mm -hmm. and metal and hard and have it feel Feel good. And I think that's a big reason why Slayer is so successful is because that drumming is so it feels so good, even though it's fast. And that's because of him. Well, and you mentioned Foreigner, and and that's got a certain groove and a certain tempo and a certain feel. Compared to like Marilyn Manson, where, how are you applying this feel thing to those completely different kinds of gigs? I think you can play it with Manson. Everything was to a click. The entire beginning, you know, from top to bottom. And, um, I still think when I play, audition for him, when I audition, I play, I always kind of, I play a little more swaggery, a little more bonhomie because you can play around and we could, you know, I do in clinics, I kind of talk about all this stuff about how you can really dictate feel with like something as simple as the hi-hats, you know, and they're yeah. overlooked and you can make it feel like it's pushing and pulling and, you know, harder than it is or softer than it is by using the right tool and the right dynamics and the right yeah, instrument. Yeah. And it all, you know, all comes into play. But at the end of the day, you know, I feel like, um, 
whether it's to a grid or not, you can make it feel however you want it to. You know, I never listen to a click. I just play around it. You know, I, I rarely try to play on it, and that's just my thing. And so far, it's worked. You know, mm-hmm. um, but generally, you know, I feel like you can, with, even with a gig like Manson, you can make it feel really mm-hmm. slimy and sloppy or really swaggery. Mm-hmm. And he liked that in the audition. He was like, "Man, it sounds like Bonamy, and I love it." You know, mm-hmm. and uh, he's like, "I always wanted a drummer that played that way." You know, so that was that was a big. Plus at that audition and I'm playing along to the record, which is all to a grid. So I see. Um, whereas foreigner was one of those gigs. Like if you played to a click and that's all you know how to play, you'd never get the gig because every verse is the verses are all at one place. The chorus is at another, the pre-chorus is somewhere else and yeah. the bridge goes, drops down four beats, you know? Yeah. 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 And that's just how they've been doing it since 78 or 70, you know what I mean? 77. Right, and right. that's just how it is. And so I would listen to Jeff Pilsen, like a hawk and Jeff was listening to Mick Jones and I was listening to Mick Jones. And then it was like this, that was like the trifecta. And once that fell into place, everything else kind of locked in. I see. I see. So there was no, cl- I would put a click on maybe like a song, like I want to know what love is or something. Mm-hmm. On your website, you have a couple, you have a Marilyn Manson video and you've got foreigner video and it's, um, I mean, just anybody listening, just go there. You can see a great example of just exactly what you're talking about. Just the feels. And it's when you're doing a, when you're playing with foreigner, I was like, well, that's not to a click, but man, that feels great. Cool. It's really cool. Yeah. yeah that's the goal. Really cool. And those guys were no joke, man. They're no joke. It, it felt great every night. There was no room for it not feeling great. You know, it had oh, to feel good awesome. all the time. It always felt good. There were times where I was playing with it, it was almost transcendental or trans, I don't know, just sure, like I was transcending. Sure. Like, yeah, I was like, yeah, this yeah. feels so so good. I feel like I'm going to fall off my drum throne. You know, it was just such a giant. Didn't, like, uh, Aerto was talking about, like, when you play. There's this, you transcend into this parallel universe where oh, there's I, another musician and you're just trying to reach through that. Into that I other. think there are a lot of ways you can analyze like the whole other level. Like someone once said, like, you know, imagine if you really never, I mean, even, well, if no one knew how to play their instrument at all, like we weren't even close, you know, like Hendrix wasn't even close. You know what I mean? Imagine if there was such another level of how this instrument should be played and we're just barely scratching the surface. And there's lots of ways to think about it. But I've certainly floated above. It's more like I feel like I'm looking down on myself. And I've been there moments yes, when it gets yeah. so good that I'm just looking at myself playing. And I've been there. I can yeah. I can see it. I've done it in weird places. But it's where you just literally look down. You're like, wow, it's so happening. You're like literally outside of your body. As weird as that sounds, I'm not crazy. But I've felt that before. You know what I mean? <laughs> but, but that's... There Side moments, note, I'm not crazy. There well, moments like that and there are moments like even with like like smash mouth um you know where i'm able to just the groove is just gets so fat you know you just go wow this is like another level you know what i mean and that's to me that's where it really gets fun for younger drummers when you can really put all those things like the feel comes into play and then dudes just look at you and they're just like the singer comes back and he's like what are the fuck are you doing mm-hmm. like, what are you doing you know, mm-hmm. or like, you know, I had that happen with like, you know, where I'm like emphasizing the hi-hat really hard and the mm-hmm. guitarist, cause he's changing on an acoustic and he's like, why does it feel so good right now? And it's like, <laughs> cause I'm playing in my mind, I'm thinking I'm playing the exact rhythm you're playing on your guitar. Oh, right. I'm playing every single hi-hat, whereas you're used to dudes playing an accent. So your guitar can kind of fit, you know, I'm playing every note. And so it's locking right in. So you yeah. know right where to put it. So there's no question, you know, it's like, so there's those moments. Those are the moments I live for when yeah, someone just turns yeah, to you yeah. and goes, why is it so great right now? <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah, yeah. Or that look from the singer, like shaking his head, like, yes, you know, and, and that was, that, that wasn't lost on any of these, you know, when you go into an audition, that's a big deal. You know, you can earn their trust because someone like Chris Cornell is singing these high notes yeah. with so much air and ferocity that if you're pulling it back a couple of notches, he's not going to hold that note long mm-hmm. enough. Mm-hmm. He's going to lose it. 
Mm-hmm. So you got to play that shit consistently because he's going to rely on you. Mm-hmm. And if he can rely on you, he can fly. Right. And that was never lost on him, you know, and I, I got that compliment a lot from him because, which meant a lot, you know, he yeah. knew that I would be able to put it in a spot without a click or with a click. And he would always consistently be able to get to that. And he, he, he really trusted appreci- that. He appreciated that because Perform. when you're moving that much air and hitting those notes, mm-hmm. you can't push it and you can't pull it too far. It's gotta be in the right spot, you know? Right. Right. And and a singer, man, you know, that's a singer. They rely on that drummer, you know, so so yeah. important. And I think a lot of drummers, when they're trying to find a tempo, it's like, you know, this, let the singer dictate because right. he's got to move the air. And if the air is too, you know. You can hear them struggling either to get the words out because yeah. it's too fast or to hold the note because it's too slow. Exactly. And, yeah. and so it's like such, the, such so little mystery to it, yet it's how many guys have thought about that who are listening to this you know maybe not a lot of them you know right, and it's like right. that's the difference between making music and really making a making being able to provide this guy with what he needs to say you know this is the tempo guys this is this is where it was no wait a minute what about right now what about the performance what yeah. about on stage right then and what you guys are doing on stage and what the people are listening to yeah I mean to. you could go crazy with that luckily I somebody was talking about that recently about tempo and timing and click and it's like honestly luckily I don't remember the last time anyone's ever turned around and said anything about time like I can't remember mm-hmm. and granted a lot of stuff is to a click a lot of stuff isn't and I just remember those days early on where you know everybody every band leader was just up your ass about like you know click and you're dragging you're rushing it's like I forgot what that feels like and man it feels good to not have to worry about that right now do you think that sometimes the feel is so good it could be a little bit slower than it was the night before but still okay oh certainly okay absolutely yeah Certainly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my favorite drummers, some of my favorite drummers, and when you talk to those guys, they can't really describe why they play with great feel. Like drummers like Toss Panos in LA. But I keep asking. You have to. <laughs> but they're not going to know. Kurt Piscara. Oh, I I'm sure like that. Fred Eltringham, who's another dear friend who lives out here, who just his feel has always been amazing. We were in Boston together. Okay. Yeah. And He's uh, been on the podcast. Yeah. And so Fred has this weird, elusive, kind of crazy, slinky feel. And it's like, I mean, I'm sure if you ask Well, him, I have to admit... Um, Fred was a, a little bit of a challenge to interview because I would ask him all these questions, his setup, his feel, and he couldn't give me any answers. Yeah. Well, there you go. That's, that sums it up. But oh, yet, no, when no, you no, sit no, there no. and listen, I need sit, answers, man. That's why. Yeah, I'm, but, why yeah, but the talking. best players who play with the best feel. And so I literally, when I started doing clinics, I set out to like come up. So in my clinic, I go real big on feel now. You know? So real quick, can you tell me? Briefly, what you do, what you cover on your clinics. I mean, clinics, I cover everything. You know, it's tough. I was, you know, I had it's funny, I've been asked this by a bunch of people, so I feel like I'm repeating myself, but it's good because it's going out to a bunch of different people, you know, but I'm like, didn't I just say this? Oh, yeah, it was this other drummer last night who asked me that. But basically, you know, I try to like, I try to like be, you know, clinics are, are very you know, to do a good clinic, I think, you know, and I've been inspired by Riley yeah. and Redmond oh, yeah. who are, do these great clinics yeah. and, and they've been doing it for years and they're relentless, you know, when they do them and where they do them. And I think that I've, I've taken a lot from that. My first earlier clinic story, I remember Riley said, you know, you just got to find you, like you got to find the you in there. Mm-hmm. Who's, you know, put your person, you know, get more of your personality because you got this great personality and it's not all coming out. And, uh, I think I found that niche, you know, and it mm-hmm. takes a while, you know, mm-hmm. but I think you need equal parts you know, a lesson you need, um, you know, as far as, uh, I think you need like the razzle dazzle of like the playing, you know, you gotta sure. play enough so people sure. can, cause some guys just want to go there and see that you need to, you know, you need to educate, but you also need to, um, 
entertain, you know, and you need to keep it fun and funny and not dwell too much on too many details because not everyone is going to be coming from the same place. So you have to keep a big wide scope. So I think there's a big fine line there. But that said, I try to teach, I try to teach a little something in there where someone will leave with a certain lick. I try to focus on the, the more cerebral because a lot of people will say, you have to diversify or you have to adapt and then they move on. And it's like, no, I try to break it down and go through that Cornell thing and show how I diversified by learning how I adapted to the gig by learning double bass yes. when it was the Cornell gig. And then I diversified by taking that double bass and practicing it. And I was able to apply it mm-hmm. to help me get a job with Manson. Mm-hmm. So it was, there's this exact clear path of how I was able to, Sure, you know, I got out of my, I, my, I got out of my comfort zone by pulling the thing out in the first place and 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 from there you know what i mean so i try to do that and describe i describe you know feel and i talk about the importance of that i talk about um how you can make a um, you know literally make an arc of a song as a drummer and drastically improve the musical experience for the listener and for the band mm-hmm. i talk about you know i play rudiment i do a rudimental solo which is kind of you know my hit which is the stupidest thing i ever thought of like playing a rudimental solo in the middle of a drum clinic you know with sticks flying around it's like so much room for error it's misery (laughs) but it's fun and the people love it and when i go to play it everyone pulls out their cell phones it's like you know it's kind of fun and um you know show that here's an entirely different world that i spent time on even just to touch on it because i tried to originally talk about compound rudiments and Bridging the gap between drum core and drum line and drum set, and it's man, it's just people would just glaze over. That's its own clinic someday. Um, I try to do a thing on brushes to show the opposite right, extreme, right, and right. and then I, you know, I do a thing on odd meters and talk about that, and I play along to a bunch of different pieces to give the idea and solo a little bit. So I try to, you know, that's ultimately the clinic I try to do. You know, in other clinics, depending if it's at a college, it will be different, and if it's at a high school, if it's at a music store, I'll have different people. So. I'll kind of set up it up, set it up yeah. a little differently, but that's that's it in a nutshell. If that makes sense, yeah, no, it does. Yeah. Is there like a, a a pizza box that sounds best for you when you're playing? I brushes? think you know personally. I think it's got to be you know the New York pizza, New York pizza, because you know, <laughs> they're just, just better. Dude, that's a that is a great video. I mean, if anything, uh, I, and what what tune is that that you're playing along? Up Jump Spring, I think. Yeah, three four. Yeah, that just came. I have a buddy of mine who's a director. Um, who lives in New York, who did the rudimentals thing. And he want, we wanted to do something. I was like, I'm going to be in New York. And he's like, oh, what are we going to do? What do you want to do? He's like, it's got to be artistic. Ah, and he was like, let's get some old lady. And she'll tap dance. She'll play brushes. And I was like, where are we going to find an old lady, dude? It's like, we're going to try to do this tomorrow. Like, yeah. we're, in the, we're in Soho, you know? Like, yeah. And I was like, well, I could do this brushes thing. And we could get a trio. Ah, we're going to get a trio. Ah. And I was like, well, I do this thing. And I have a track on my phone with no drums. And we could... You know, and that's where that came from. But in college, I used to practice with a pizza box. And oh, I used and to go does, busk. They do sound good, though. They do sound good. Yeah. I used to busk, you know, down in Dallas Alley and all around Dallas with a bass player and a sax player and a pizza box, you know. Put it on my lap, play brushes. And, oh, we're playing a rock tune? Okay, that's all I got. There's no bass room. There's no, that's a pizza box. We're playing a samba? Okay, you know, it was great. Mm-hmm, we could do brush mm-hmm, chops together. Mm-hmm. I love that. Again, comfort zone, you know, and right. adapting and pushing. Making his, those sounds yeah. all right there. It was really, I think, fun musical challenge. And people got a kick out of it. And I never did that since. And then here, this video, I thought, oh, that'll be cool. And I think he kind of went overboard with the old pizza making thing. But whatever, you know, God bless him. And, and it just kind of <laughs> happened that way. And that's, there it is. And, so you're uh, 
signature sticks and brushes. Mm -hmm. How did that develop? Basically, I, you know, I was with Vickford for 15 years and more than that, you know, 15, 15 years of an endorser. And it became pretty clear they didn't really, they weren't that interested in doing a, you know, a stick. And I had a bunch of ideas and, you know, it's a big family and I love those guys, but I was touring with Foreigner, I think Foreigner. Yeah, it was just Foreigner. We went through, we played a couple of casinos a couple of times and, Niagara Falls and uh, a guy who was an A&R at the time called me and said, hey, I'd love to bring you by and tour the factory. Are you interested? And I said, hell yeah. You know, a place where the first drumstick was made. I mean, first, mm -hmm. you know, multiple sticks were made. The first drumstick company, let's say. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the guy who named the 5A and the 5B, hell yeah. You know, it was the yeah. first sticks I ever held in my hand. Yeah. And so I went by and I was kind of blown away, but it was like totally like, wow, this is so, you know family and hand, you know, low, you know, just, just right, right. low fi, you know, I was like, this is rad, so. you know? And he gave me a giant stick bag with a bunch of stuff and brushes. And of course I've always used real tip brushes. I never used Vic Firth brushes. They're terrible. You know, it's like, they're, you know, it's like, no. And, um, so I gave me a bunch of sticks and I was like, wow, these jazz sticks feel incredible. And I was like, wow, those feel amazing. And there are all these sticks that kind of fall through the cracks that Regal Tip makes that people don't, don't think about for jazz sticks. It's like they have these really beautiful sticks that are like the sticks Elvin played back in the day, right. these beads that mm -hmm. no one else makes, you know? Mm -hmm. And I got, you know, the Jeff Hamilton brush and I was like, wow. And I got, you know, all these different tools and I was like really interested. And they gave me this one stick that just changed everything for me. It was called a nine Oh, wait, no, a 7B. I think it's called a 7B or a 9B. 7B, 7B. Okay. 7B or 9B. Anyway, and I was like, what is this stick? And it's this weird, like, longer than a 5A. It feels like a 5A with a 5B, but it's longer. And it was like, has this, the beat is not that impressive, but the stick itself was gorgeous. Mm -hmm. and, and unbeknownst to me, Brian Tishy had given me the same offer recently when he was out with Whitesnake, came in, got one of these 9Bs, and was like, I think it's a 9B. Anyway, and he was like, dude, I heard you went in and he's like, what are you digging? I was like the nine B he's like the nine B. And we were both just like flipping out on mm -hmm. the stick. Mm -hmm. Well, Tishy jumped over and he made a stick called the Tish stick. That was really rad. And I remember playing that. I was like, this feels great. The next gig I got was the New York, New York dolls and all using the dolls now were regal tip. They were just giving me sticks and I was just sniffing around nice. and I thought if the next thing comes along, I'll switch, you know? And they were like, yeah, we'll make you a stick. We'll make you a brush. And I was oh. like, I would really dig this. But so long story short, they, you know, I get the Manson gig. I switched over. The stick came about. I wanted something like a 9B or a Tish stick with a, they have this great stick that's called an 8A and a 9, and a 9, 8A and a 9A. And those sticks are basically like, uh, you know, the 8A was like, is what like every session guy, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. From even Keltner when he uses wood to, um, Jeff Picaro. Jeff Picaro used right, an 8A. Right, right, you know, it's like right. this sound. And I've even had producers, you know, Eric Valentine say, use this stick. It sounds better. Oh, and the tip wow. is just this profound triad. It's just this gorgeous wood. And their bead is, their barrel is nothing like any other barrel as we geek out here. Just try it, you know, mm -hmm. taste test mm -hmm. it. You know, blow yeah. your mind, the yeah. sound. And really, the tip is the sound, you know. I mean, the stick, you know. And so, the, I always wanted that sound. I like the 9A, but the 9A was a bigger version, but it was too small still for me. I couldn't get away with it, you know. Mm -hmm. And I loved the way that sounded on cymbals. It was so gorgeous. And I was just kind of bummed. There was no rock stick at the time that had that barrel mm -hmm. that matched it in, in size. And so I basically took that, I wanted I basically like this 9B vibe to start with. Yeah. And we went from there. And then I came up with the idea of getting this, like basically like a 10B or 10A, which would be like the next step up that didn't exist. I wanted that barrel tip bigger yeah. because if it's bigger, it would dent, if it's the small ones, it will dent the heads if they're hard, played hard. Okay. So it had to be big enough where it wouldn't dent heads, but, but small enough where it would give me that exact same quality 
of the, of the sound. A. Yeah, that woody tone out of a okay. cymbal or hi hat. Yeah. And uh, they did it. And I'm absolutely, I couldn't be happier. I went to a few, maybe four different versions. Four when different, did this come out? When you... That came out about two years ago at okay. Pasek. Yeah. And uh, I just got to say, man, and I get drummers all over the world who write me about it and different guys who use other sticks who love it. It yeah. just means so much. I mean, the sticks play themselves, you know? Yeah. I, could do, I could do my snare solo, my drumline stuff with it if I want. They're nice. so balanced, but I can play lighter. Yeah. I couldn't use it for jazz, but for jazz, I use like their three other sticks they have that are amazing. Like, are you playing? Do you have an opportunity to use your... The brushes? Yeah, in town I have a little jazz thing I try to do whenever I can. But, you know, it's like crying wolf. Right when I get my jazz thing happening, I end up getting a gig and going on tour, you know? <laughs> it's like getting students. I get like 10 students and then I have to split. But I'm actually doing Skype lessons to anybody out there. I'm at jasonsutter.com. You can get contact and hit me up and I can talk to you about Skype lessons, which is actually really cool. And I forget yeah. to always say that. So feel free right to hit now, me up. We'll, we'll include all that Yeah, because I do sure. that all over the world. I got a guy yeah, in Australia yeah. and a guy in New York and a girl in... Where is she? Maryland, maybe. Anyway, uh, and so the brushes came about. I started studying with Jeff Hamilton, and I was using his brush exclusively, which, of course, was yeah. not an option. Yeah. And it's a very thick gauge wire, you know, very okay. thick. And there's no other brush like it. And at first it was like, ah, it doesn't have, have any flex, and it's really harsh. But why does he make it sound so great? Well, the whole theme is, the whole idea is it gives a bigger sound. Not a louder sound, but a fuller sound. Mm -hmm. And to the point now where the 583R, which is the brush we all, you know, it's like we all grew up on and everybody ripped off. I can't even play with those brushes anymore, you know? They're oh, so quiet and wispy. And mm -hmm. so I really, I relish that big, full sound. And it's yeah. just so much. And, and for articulation as well, if you're right. using anything. So I kind of started getting hip to that. And they were like, well, we're ready to do a brush. You know, the sticks in order. What do, you, what do you think for a brush? And I was like, well, I love the, you know, the Hamilton. And I love all that. But I said that I miss the flex of a 583R. And I kind of, my style has a bit of it. I rely on that, you know. And they were like, well, what do we do? And Because they were thinking like handle or whatever. And, and I was like, well, how many gauges? You were getting more into the wire. Wire, which is where the sound is. Yeah. And from starting with Hamilton, it was like just, you know, way deep. Mm -hmm. And I was like... You know, how many gauges of wire are there between the 583R and the Jeff Hamilton? And they were like, it was like quiet. And they were like, we've never thought of that. Never, <laughs> ever thought of it. Let's yeah. call, we'll call the, uh -huh. the distributor and we'll get back to you. Uh -huh. And they called me back the next day and said, there's one. I said, that's my brush. That's going to be my brush. Yeah. I said, have you ever made a brush like that? No. Is anybody? No. Yeah. That's my brush. I can feel it. Send me yeah. that brush. And they sent me one with a thick handle like Hamilton's and a smaller one. I said, I don't want to go near Hamilton's brush. Yeah. So I said, I got it and I played it and I like literally that moment I came up with a brush lick that is kind of my own little, I call the sutter flutter as a joke, you know, but it's my own little, little lick that I've never heard anybody do. And literally it just came out like within the first 10 minutes of playing with these brushes. I just, it was so inspiring. I came up with this little spin that I've since kind of shown some cats. That's kind of fun, but so it was that inspiring. It caused me to like completely come from a different place. And nice. it was just, and everyone I, you know, I put in their hands, they were like, this is something different. This oh, is cool, cool. man. And so then it was like, okay, well, what color? And we tried to get, make it red, but, you know, you change the chemical balance of the color of See, I'm wondering if Forks is still open right now because I, I, yeah. <laughs> I wonder if they have them. I hope they have them. But it's like a, it's a rubber, you know, I have to change the rubber. So I went through and I, I came up with like a kind of a rubber that looked like the old vintage brushes, you know, like a surgical rubber, like a brown rubber. Right, right. That kind of reddish brown clay. Yeah. That, what, what we had in high school, but they were right. so... 
Right, but I thought, you know, this is cool, but it's just a little like your grandmother's, like, you know, it's like like a water bag or, you know, I was like, yeah, maybe maybe we do a limited run, which could be cool, you know? But then I got this blue, and it was the same feeling, and I was like, ah, man, this is cool. And I started inquiring, you know, what would sell more to music stores? I did my research. I went out and did the research, and they said, blue would sell way better, you know? Mm -hmm. And I always thought, why isn't there a colored brush like that? And blue can get dirty, but it doesn't get, like, ugly like a red. Mm -hmm. There aren't that many colored brushes. I mean, there's a purple brush, you know, that they make, Mm -hmm. but... Not a very pretty color and definitely doesn't age well. And uh, I just thought, you know, so we came up with this. And then I said, well, what do we name it? And you know, I had a bunch of names. And then Carol Collado just called me. She said, why don't we call it the Sutter? Just call it the Sutter. You know, like it's like you're, you know, like a, be done with it. Like the 50s, like the Sutter, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was like, your dad named the 5A and the 5B. I'm not going to argue with you, Carol Collado. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so no, there, right. was, there was name. And we used the same font as the yeah. Samurai on my chopsticks. And it was born, man. And yeah. I, I absolutely, I couldn't, I couldn't describe how much I love it. I have the awesome. flex I need and I get this big full sound and it's just so great for articulation. Great. If you're going to do train beats, you know, any mm-hmm. kind of articulation now, yeah. you have this beautiful tool that will. I'm due for new brushes, man. I'm excited. Yeah. To me, it's a middle brush. I look at it like it is the middleweight brush mm-hmm. and should be like, you know, it's a whole new tool that you should kind of yeah. get hip to. So yeah. it's kind of exciting to have That's this. That's awesome. Other and one. who else are you uh, endorsing right now? Peisty? Peisty, Ludwig, Ludwig. Okay. Uh, Regal Tip, mm-hmm. Canopus Snare Wires, which I think really changed my awesome. sound and the sound of it, snare drums. Mm-hmm. And uh, Humes and Berg, and yet Protection Racket, you know, for their gear, for their bags, which I love. Um, DW Hardware. I've been with oh, DWR cool. for 20 years. Holy cow. Wow. It's crazy to think about, that's right? Uh, and then uh, I don't know if there's anything else. I think that's it, which yeah. is kind of wild. So it's fun, man. It's fun to have people play the brushes and play the sticks. And get, I get great feedback. And it's like exciting because I really, it's like I'm holding like this wonderful power in my hands, this beautiful like tool. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of fun. To, that's great. Yeah. That's it's cool. kind of worked out, you know, so far. I'm really happy. And I feel like, you know, basically it's a brush that literally is like the middle ground brush. So hopefully when it, someone goes to, you know, a beginner or somebody goes to buy a brush, they're going to buy that blue brush, which is the Looks brush. Cool. Start, yeah. with, start with that brush because yeah. then you can go to low, lighter and heavier. Right now you have the perfect. The balance. Right, yeah. Right, so right, right, right. Trying to go for right. that to become right. hopefully recognized as what it yeah. is. You know, yeah. So yeah. We'll see you know, awesome. where those brushes take people. I'm excited. You know. Yeah, yeah. Jason, I appreciate you, man. Absolutely, man. We managed to get some drum geekage in at the end. We there. did. You know, that we doesn't de- always happen. Honestly, we detailed. kind of go off on tangents. Yeah, uh, we geeky. I don't know if we if we connected any of those dots or not, but uh, I, th- I think I think you'd be surprised. Yeah, hopefully. Uh, yeah, how we did that. Cool, man. For sure. Awesome. Thanks again. Thanks, Jason Sutter. We appreciate it, man. Uh, he's a busy guy, and it was just awesome that he took time to sit down and talk with us. I want to go to uh, another part we've been doing here on our outros, a little uh, shameless self-promotion. I've got a tweet from John freaking Salazar at Sal Dirt at working underscore drummer. I listened to Morrow and Gray interview in the same day. My heart aches. Sometimes drumming has nothing to do with drumming. That's awesome, John. Thanks for posting that. He's talking about Greg Morrow and uh, Trey Gray, those two separate interviews. That was great. Uh, Again, my thanks to Mike Jackson for his help uh, at All Things Technical uh, getting this up. Uh, We are currently working on getting some episodes up on SoundCloud, so look for that in the near future. 
Big announcement. I uh, want to say that we are getting involved with the Nashville Drummers Jam. So we're going to be posting some videos with exclusive interviews with those that are participating. And uh, so look for more information about that in the near future. Thanks for everyone's support, and we'll see you around. Bye-bye.